Good morning, everyone. Good to see everybody today. Very thankful to be here and looking forward to going over this passage with you. I'm not sure if I'll get through the whole thing. It is an amazing passage. Very, very encouraging. Uh, there's a huge debate in, even, in the evangelical world today about how we should share the gospel with unbelievers. There are many, many different methods and many, many different people that are trying to or attempting to share the gospel with people. Uh, many have said that when we share Christ, we need to make it as easy for the person to hear as possible uh, so they'll embrace it. And they say there should be no mention of sin or hell or, or judgment. They say we should really never talk about a person's sin. Uh, this mindset has carried over into the church ministries. Many, many churches around our country do everything they can to avoid talking about anything but the righteous character of our God and His wrath. They avoid talking about sin, and so this is all for the purpose of being able to attract more people to their churches. This same mindset is seen in churches doing everything they can to entertain their audience. So people try to attract people by all kinds of means, and it's the bait-and-switch process. I was in uh, sales for a long time, seven years before I went into the ministry, and I know very well what the bait-and-switch method is. Get your foot in the door and then turn around and sell them an $1,100 vacuum cleaner. The reality is, though, that there is some deception in that, and it's wrong. And I had to be more upfront even when I was in my sales business to just tell them more like it is. This is what I'm coming to do. And the same way should be in churches, right? Should we disguise the church as something that it's not and then come in and turn around and give them a different message? That makes no sense. Draw them into church by worldly ways, then switch to the gospel of Christ? There's a huge problem with this. First, it's deceptive, right? And second... Jesus doesn't promise worldly riches. Jesus doesn't promise or offer people to be wealthy. Jesus doesn't offer a mansion here. He doesn't promise good health here. He doesn't promise praise from people, does he? If people come to church for the worldly blessings, then when you tell them that God really offers you none of these things that you came for, what are they going to do? leave or then you will have to change your message <laughs> and you will tell them that Jesus offers those things when he really doesn't ladies and gentlemen that is not evangelism Jesus offers death here <laughs> and life in heaven Jesus offers denial of self here giving up your riches here that's what he wants you to do die to self <laughs> That's what he offers here. If you're here, ladies and gentlemen, at our church for entertainment, I'm sorry, but that's not a wrong reason for you to be here. <laughs> I hope you're not here to be entertained. By the way, if you're here to make friends and have friends, that's really not the ultimate reason to be here either. If you're here to be told ways of the world are acceptable, you're in the wrong place. Evangelism is good news, but 
The good news is not God wants you to be wealthy, healthy, and popular. The good news is this. We are all sinners deserving God's infinite wrath in hell. And yet God has given His Son to save sinners like us if we will repent and trust in Him and embrace Him. In order for us to hear this good news, we must first understand we need good news, right? We must first know that we are sinners in need of gospel good news. But again, churches giving a false presentation of the gospel is not going to make people embrace that by any means. Ladies and gentlemen, we have to also be careful of the other extreme. This does not mean we yell and scream and terrorize people with our emotions. I can get really emotional up here. That is not a reason for you to turn to Jesus. I don't want to scare you into it. I'm not trying to manipulate you by my emotions, and it should not be that way. We must not try to intimidate people thinking we can scare them to God. We also must not water down the message so much thinking we could maybe woo people to God. Neither way works. What is the true evangelistic method? Today we're going to see an example of an evangelistic encounter between Jesus and a rich young ruler. It will give us an example for our evangelistic efforts also. But it will also reveal to us where our only hope is found. Our hope is found in God. It is not found in our abilities to woo people to God. We do not draw people to God. We do not win sinners. God wins sinners through the message of the gospel. This passage is a dialogue between a ruler and Jesus. This account is mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The ruler is also rich and young, as the other accounts explain. In these events, we get a horrifying glimpse into the heart of a lost person, this rich young ruler. We see people are, they'll, they'll have a tendency to consider themselves good by worldly standards, but they are in fact totally depraved. The lost consider themselves good when in fact they are evil. We will see the problem starts with the wrong view the unbeliever has of God. The lost person has a wrong view of God and his world. He has a wrong worldview, as you could call it. Now, I want, you to, I want to warn you again that even when we become believers, followers of Jesus, we are still susceptible to these skewed worldviews. When our hearts are transformed, we are still prone to think wrong about ourselves and about God. We can fall into these same kinds of thinking. So as we make our way through this passage, don't fall into the trap of pointing your finger at the rich young ruler and saying, man, that guy's bad. That's one evil dude. Can you believe him? He thinks he does not sin. And remember something, that that is who you are prone to be still. You are prone to not see your own sin. You are prone to justify yourself. You are prone to see sin in everybody else but yourself. The problem happens ultimately because we're still in these bodies of death that we are killing daily. So let's walk through this passage 
And we're going to see that our hope is found in God alone, not in ourselves. We see our hope is found in God alone, not ourselves. First, I want you to notice a wrong worldview. In verse 18, it starts out, A ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? We see here the first revelation of the rich young ruler's wrong worldview of himself and God. This rich young ruler had a wrong theology and a wrong anthropology. He had a wrong view of God, theology, and a wrong anthropology. He had a wrong view of man. The young ruler called Jesus a good teacher. And at first glance, we might say, well, that's good. Jesus was the good teacher, right? He's the good shepherd. He is the good teacher. There has never been a teacher as good as Jesus. Would you not agree? But the problem was the young ruler had a wrong view of the word good. And Jesus is going to confront this. The ruler thought he was good like Jesus. (laughs) The young man thought he was able to do good. As we see from the other account, it says literally, he also asked this question, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? So he thinks, from the other account, that he's able to do good. And for him to say to Jesus, good teacher, meant absolutely nothing. Because the standard of what good meant was useless. I think we need to have an accurate definition of good, just like this guy needs an accurate definition of good. You know, I've struggled with this word good for a long time, trying to figure out what in the world God is good. You know, we say it all the time, God is good, right? What does that mean, good? I've often thought, you know, good, good means kindness, right? Or, or you know, that good. Well, it actually means, and it's very interesting, Grudem gives an amazing definition. He says, the goodness of God means that God is the final standard of good. And that all that God is and does is worthy of approval. Now that key little phrase at the end is crucial. Is worthy of approval. When we think of good, we say, okay, something's good. That means it's worthy of approval. He's a good teacher. He's worthy of approval. The word good carries with it the idea that it's a standard. And we say, yes, that's worthy of praise. Now, it's very important. A biblical definition of good has a different standard than a human standard. For me to say something is good means absolutely nothing if it's coming from my wicked heart. For me to say, wow, that's worthy of approval and I'm not right with God means nothing. I I guess, let me explain this a little bit. It would be like me saying this, that rapper, that rapper has a really good rhyme scheme to his songs. That rapper has a really good rhyme scheme to his songs. And we're like, okay, what's that mean? Well, some of you might know exactly what I'm talking about, and others would say, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, neither do I, because I don't know what a rhyme scheme is. I have no idea what a rhyme scheme is. They talked about it the whole weekend they were here, what a rhyme scheme is. And, wow, that's a great rhyme scheme. Yeah, yeah. What's a rhyme scheme? For me to say, that's a good rhyme scheme, means what? Nothing. 
For me to say, that's worthy of approval, that rhyme scheme, means nothing. Because I have no standard. My standard is skewed. I don't know what's good and what's bad. Same way with this man. When he said, good teacher, he says, you're worthy of approval, good teacher. But my standard's all blown up out of the whack. So that really means nothing. And Jesus confronts him with that. This was the problem the man had. He called Jesus a good teacher, but he did not understand what true goodness was. And this further is further revealed in the young ruler's question to Jesus. He said, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Excuse me. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? What good things shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? The man was clueless to God's standard for eternal life, right? He actually thought he was able to do good deeds that would earn him approval with God. He thought he was literally able to be good enough to be worthy of approval by God. Now think about that for a second. Does anybody think that you can do anything that would be worthy of approval from God? <laughs> no. But this guy thought that. The man was clueless to God's standard for eternal life. He thought he was good. He had a low view of God, didn't he? He had a real low view of God's righteousness. He had a high view of his own righteousness. He had a wrong view of how persons, people are saved. He thought it's by what they did. He had a low view of who he was and who he was talking to. I know, you say, wait, he called him a good teacher. No, 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 no. Doesn't mean anything. That's why Jesus confronts him. And he asks him some really good questions. Look what Jesus did. did. He confronts him and calls him to reevaluate his heart. He says this. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? Matthew's account, by the way, adds, why are you asking me about what is good? No one is good except for God, except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. This is Jesus' first attempt to lovingly confront this misled young ruler and call him to repent. As we saw, Jesus addresses this guy with the wrong view of good. Jesus reply is absolutely masterful. I am telling you, it's amazing. He not only confronts the man's wrong view of himself, but Jesus also reveals his deity in the process and gives the man the location where his hope is found. All in that first set of questions. He does it in one masterful two questions. Boom. Two questions and a statement and then the, the commands. Just, it's, it's masterful. He asks, why do you call me good? In effect, if you understand what is really good, you will know that God alone is good. If you really have a right standard, you understand what worthy is of approval, you'll know that it's God alone. Do you call me good because you see my life and how I'm different? Do you recognize that I'm truly good? Or are you basing your approval 
of me on your own sinful standards. Now, it's very interesting. This is really, when you look at 19, why do you call me good? And then no one is good except God alone. He's saying, really, it can only be one of two things. One, I'm not God or I am God. I'm not God or I am God. Obviously, I am God is what he's emphasizing. In this passage, he's saying, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. He doesn't say, why do you call me good? Stop calling me good. Stop calling me good. You got it right. It is good. You just have the wrong understanding of good. God alone is good and I'm him. All of that in two masterful questions. He says, look, your whole worldview is blown up. You're wrong. But you are talking to good. And you are talking to God. And I am your hope. And in essence. God's word makes it clear that God is the only one who is good. God is worthy of full approval and praise. Notice what Psalm 104 and 5 says. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is Good. He's worthy of approval. Give thanks to him. Bless him. For he alone is worthy of approval. Psalm 106.1 Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. For he is good. How about this one? Psalm 34.8 Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. He is worthy of approval. He is that fine Fine Lord. He is the one that we should bask in and be satisfied with. Listen, if something is good, we should be satisfied with it. And we are satisfied by it, right? If he says to the rich young ruler, think about this for a second. Only God alone is good. I am good in a sense. What is he saying to him? I'm satisfying. Come to me. He is both rebuking him for his sin and at the same time giving him hope. At the very same time. It's masterful. What most of us do, we either do one or the other, but we don't do both. Often in our evangelism, we try to give them hope without them understanding they need hope. Or we condemn them and don't give them hope. Jesus in Two little questions in a statement gives both. <laughs> Shows him he's completely off his rocker with his definition of good and I am your hope. <laughs> it's amazing. Jesus says it very clearly. Only God is good. Only God is worthy of approval. And then Jesus says, I am him in a sense. I am God. He says, in effect, if you think I am good and only God is good, that means I am God. At the same time, we see here Jesus confronts the man's wrong view that the ruler himself is able to do good. This is where we must all start with our own evangelism. Listen to me. God is good. You are not good. Jesus is God and he is good. There you go. There's the evangelism. God is good. He's worthy of approval, not you. 
You are not good. You are not worthy of approval. God sent his son who is good, worthy of approval. Turn from your sin and embrace the Savior. That's all he does. It's amazing. Listen, the elements of a gospel presentation are very clear here. They're over and over. God is worthy of all approval. He is good. You are not worthy of God's approval. You are not good. (laughs) Finally, but God sent His Son who is God and worthy of approval. He is good. That's the gospel presentation in a nutshell. And all He does is say it over and over and over and over again. Every single time He talks to the guy, He brings His worldview up, smacks it down, and gives him hope. Every single time. All of his responses are the same thing. God is good. You are bad. I am here. (laughs) I am God. Your hope is in me. All people must come to know that God is righteous. They are sinful and fall way short of God's righteousness. But God has sent his son who is righteous to save us from our sin. At first glance, we might be tempted to think Jesus only gave the law to reveal the man's sinfulness. But again, this is not true. He was saying, I am your hope. Trust me and you will live. Let me ask you a question. I I, I have a tendency to sometimes fall into taking verses and broad brushing. God gives grace to the humble but law to the proud. Let me ask you a question. Rich young ruler, when you read the story, when you heard it, is he humble or proud? Proud. But he's broken. But he's proud. He was sad. But he's proud. He did think he was good, right? If you think you're good, worthy of approval, is that pride? Yeah, and I have a tendency, I I used to broad brush. I'd say, okay, so what do you do with somebody that's proud? Give them the law, that's all you do. Bang them with the law. Bang them with the law. After all, that's what Jesus did. But did he? He gave hope too. God alone is good. You called me good. That's hope. And you'll see in a little bit, he gives him more hope in a second. And I know when we read it the first time, we think, nah, is he really giving hope? You've got to look at it. Now, Jesus does confront the man's heart with the law. And he's trying to call the man to see his sinfulness. Yes. But at the same time, he is mixing in the gospel at the same time. Let's look. Jesus continues his confrontation by bringing the law in. And he says... You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Now, you say, where's the hope in that? Is there any hope in there? I think there's actually a little glimmer of hope in there. A little glimmer of hope. Where is it? Well, there's actually two glimmers of hope. But one specifically is you know the commandments. You know the commandments? This guy just walked up to Jesus. How does Jesus know that this guy knows the commandments? Hadn't said anything. 
He's saying, I'm God. He's revealing he knows his heart. That's a staggering thought. The guy should go, whoa! How'd you know I know the commandments? <laughs> oh, but everybody in Jewish, right? No. But also the hope that there is a standard. The law shows that God is a holy God. God knows these things. But then there is the law. And the law is there for a purpose. And the law is to confront the heart. It is the tutor to Christ. It is the one that causes us to turn to God. Listen. What are these? I think it's very important when we understand. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. These are a high standard, aren't they? Let me ask you a question. Don't raise your hand and don't answer out loud. Have you kept these all your life? If you say yes, you are a liar. For Jesus has made it very clear that within the heart, within the heart we do those things, even if we do not practice them and go all the way to the end. Within our heart, as we think and meditate, you have done it. This man was not convicted at all. I don't know how you get past the last one. I don't know about you guys. Honor your father and mother. And he says that he did this all the way from his youth. Now, maybe he was thinking all the way from when I... I don't even get it. Do you get it? Does anybody Has anybody come close to honoring their mother and father their whole life? Oh, my. Do not bear false witness. He, he broke that one, obviously. Matthew states, Jesus also added the commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus added that, too. The rich young ruler needed to see that he did not love others to the standard God set. But he thought he was worthy of approval to his standard. To his standard. He saw those and said, well, I live up to them to my standard. But that's not what matters. What matters is, is do you live up to them to God's standard? That's all that matters. He had a wrong worldview, and he misses it. Notice, a wrong worldview continues in verse 21, and he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. This would be comical if it wasn't sad, right? Can you imagine? Ladies and gentlemen, I just don't get this in my heart. In my own heart. See, ladies and gentlemen, this is our propensity. Our propensity is to think that we are good. Our propensity is to think we are something when we're actually not. The guy actually thinks that he keeps the commandments his entire life. Is he serious? I think he was deluded by the wicked self-righteous system that he grew up in. After all, he was rich. In the Jewish culture, again, as we said before, the rich were blessed of God in their minds. <laughs> the reason why they were rich is because they must have kept the commandments. You must have been good, so God must have given you those riches. So the rich guy grows up thinking, man, I must be one good dude. 
Because I'm rich. Everybody told him that. You're rich, man. God's really blessing. You're a good guy. Wrong. And he bought the lies. He bought the lies that he was something. Listen, no matter what we may think, this guy was clueless to his sinfulness. And this is the telltale sign of a lost person. They don't see their sinfulness. They don't even see it. This is one of the reasons why just standing and yelling at people saying, you're this or you're this, you sin here, you do that, is not effective. It doesn't matter. They don't see themselves as sinful. They need the whole gospel. By the way, there's another quote from uh, Miss Myers that's apparently visiting Tampa this week. <laughs> Joyce Myers said this, all I, all I was ever taught to say was I, I am a poor, miserable sinner. That's what she was taught. She says this, I am not poor, I am not miserable, and I'm not a sinner. That is a lie from the pit of hell, she says. That is what I were. That was her. And if I, I still was then, Jesus died in vain. I'm going to tell you something, folks. I didn't stop sinning until I finally got it through my thick head. I wasn't a sinner anymore. The religious world thinks that this is heresy. <laughs> They're right. <laughs> And they want to hang you for it. <laughs> but the Bible says that I am righteous. And I can't be righteous and be a sinner at the same time. Oh, really? God did not come to save the righteous, but the sinner. Ladies and gentlemen, that is heresy. 1 John 1.8 says it very clear. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Don't listen to her. Now at first glance, you would think Jesus would hammer him, this rich young ruler with the law, right? I mean, the guy is pretty prideful to think that he actually does not sin. But I marvel at how gentle Jesus was in his response. Literally, Jesus becomes saddened and approaches the man. Now, Jesus hammers people, yes. Who does he hammer? False teachers. False teachers. Pharisees. One propagating self-righteousness. Yeah, like I just hammered Joyce Myers there. But the one that is being deceived by that, he has much more compassion on and much more gentleness with them. Even though they're prideful and think that they're good, he still is very gentle with them and very compassionate. He doesn't give them a long lecture, does he? It seems to be very short. He doesn't say, hey, you are just one totally depraved sinner. You're a wasted man. He goes right to the heart. I mean, it's like, okay, we're just going to go right to the problem. Boom! I'm going to poke the problem. Here it is right here. You're idle. 
Let me, let me show you your idol. <laughs> Reaches down in and says, I'm going to do it in one little sentence. He is precise. Notice he says, second call to reevaluate. He says, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. This is Jesus' second attempt at a loving confrontation of this poor misled ruler. Jesus turns the light on this guy's heart. Says, okay, this is what you're about. He pulls out a mirror and says, okay, now look closely at who you are. Are you really good? Again, the man needs to realize he was, in fact, an idolater. He had an idol. His idol was his wealth. The young ruler valued what he owned more than following Jesus. And again, at first glance, we might think, wow, this is hard, isn't it? Is this hard? There is an element of it that goes right to the heart, and it is very direct, but there is some hope found in it. And you say, where is the hope in that? There's no hope in that phrase. Looks pretty harsh to me, Mike. I see no hope in that phrase. One thing you still lack, sell all you possess, distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Where's the hope? We'll talk about it in a second. Notice what Mark's account adds. Mark's account says, Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, Wow. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. Just think for a second. This guy's idol was wealth. Who did he hate? God. Who was talking to him? God. Uh, We've had this discussion before. Does God love the sinner? Does God love the quote-unquote unelect? Well, we don't know if this guy right here ever repented, but it sure does show that He had love towards him, felt love towards him. Very important, God does love the sinner. Even the unrepentant sinner. He looks at him and feels love towards him, a commitment towards him. One thing you lack, go sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven and come follow me. Jesus says, in effect, what in this little phrase? Now, if you're thinking of it from a human standpoint, human standpoint, the first thing you think of when you see this phrase, you think, man, that's hard. Have everything you have, sell it all? Follow him? That's if you're thinking of it from the wrong perspective. If you're thinking of it from the right perspective, it's actually the most wonderful news in all the world. Really? Where's the most wonderful news in all the world found in that little phrase? Treasure in heaven, follow me. There it is, right there. Listen, the key little word in the whole thing is the last word. (laughs) Me. It's referring to who? Christ! Listen, give up all you have here in the world and follow me is good news. 
Because listen, treasures in this world go away. That rich man has been dead for thousands of years. He could care less about that money right now. He could care less about that. Give all that up, and you will have treasures in heaven, which implies what? Eternal blessings in heaven forever. Treasures in heaven forever. By the way, what is our treasure in heaven? What's our greatest treasure in heaven? God, yes. We have to be with Him. We have to be with God. That's an amazing gospel message right there. But what we've done is we've taken it and we've turned it upside down and made it all about what you give up instead of what you get. But again, Joyce Myers would say, yeah, God wants to bless you. But what's she say? Earthly blessings. But it's not that. Is it going to cost you something to follow Jesus? Yeah. Is it worth it? Absolutely. Because I get treasures in heaven, which is to be with God forever. Which is much better. Jesus says, in effect, I'm worth than more, I'm worth more than everything you own. <laughs> That's what Jesus said to the guy. I'm worth more than everything you own. Follow me. Jesus says, selling everything you have and giving to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. Follow me. This is the worst and best news this man could have ever heard. Isn't it? For a man who valued his wealth, Jesus went right to his heart and exposed his sinfulness and need of a Savior. At the same time, he went right to his heart and said, there's something really, 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 really valuable. There's a treasure. I'm talking to you. Follow me. It's glorious, isn't it? The gospel <laughs> includes our need and his provision. Both. At this point, the man should have thrown his hands up and said, I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. And Jesus would have said, Come here, brother. Come here, my child. Oh, folks. Instead, what did he do? The rejection of the truth. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. What was the reason behind him getting sad? Because he was extremely rich. But what was his problem? He had a wrong worldview. <laughs> he had a wrong worldview. He valued the wrong things. Let me ask you a question, ladies and gentlemen. What do you value? What is your what is what do you want most of all in this world? What is if you had to list out what are the things that you value more than anything else? If God isn't it, you're in trouble. Ladies and gentlemen, why does Jesus say statements like, you must love me more than father, mother, brother, sister? 
Why does he say you must hate your father, mother, brother, sister? He's not saying go hate your parents. He's saying in comparison to me, they must be so small that it doesn't matter. Oh, folks, you, we look at this rich young ruler and we say, we say, he just, he had an idol of wealth and I don't have that problem because I don't have to have a lot of money. I don't have to have a lot of money. Some of you in here say, oh, I don't have to have a lot of money. No, but your idols can be other things, ladies and gentlemen. Things like your children, people's approval. Do you understand? Those things can be the very things. Being liked by people can actually be the very thing that keeps you from coming to Christ. Any of those things. Your treasure must not be in this world. Your treasure must be in heaven and it must be God. You might think, Mike, this guy was extremely rich. Yes, this guy had tons of money. But folks, what he was rejecting for his money is staggering. Again, who was he talking to? <laughs> He's talking to God in the flesh. The one that made him is standing in front of him in flesh. It's startling, isn't it? He's saying, I want my money instead of you. Ladies and gentlemen, this is what idols do to us. They blind us to the glory of the God who is calling us to Him. Idols cause us to not see the glory of Jesus and they causes us to say no to Him and yes to something that is foolish. How wicked are we? How wicked are we? We are so wicked that we cannot fathom how wicked we are. Our sin blinds us to how amazing Jesus is and how good something that is garbage is. We say worthy of approval is my wealth when we should be saying worthy is approval is my God. Our sin causes us to reject eternal joy so that we can have 50 to 60 years of wealth. It's staggering, isn't it? By the way, that's every time we sin. Do you realize that? It's every time you sin. Every time, ladies and gentlemen, you sin, you say, this sin is better than you, God. Staggering, isn't it? Man. Folks, do you realize this man is your co-worker? 
Do you realize this is your neighbor? Do you realize this is you? This is our hearts apart from God's grace. We're not good. We choose sin over God just like this man did. It's not until God changes our hearts that we even finally recognize the glory of God. It's not until then that we begin to follow Him and hope in His Son. And this is an ongoing, everyday battle to run back to the glory of our God and find my satisfaction in Him. As Piper says, it's the dangerous duty of delight. I must delight in my God more than this world. It is my duty to be satisfied with Christ more than anything else. Notice the final call to reevaluate his condition. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easy for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a man to enter the kingdom of God? Ladies and gentlemen, this has been a hotly debated passage, especially verse 25. A camel going through a passage in some gates. Look, it's a camel going through the eye of a needle. That's what it is. Okay, that's what it is. A camel, big camel, couldn't even find, I tried to find a picture to kind of get the, you just can't, you just can't. There's no picture because you take a needle and it's about that long and you take a camel and it's about as big as a stage. You understand? Camel through the eye of a needle. What is that? Impossible. Right? Can't happen. Is this grace that Jesus is giving the man? Yes. What is he saying? You can't do it. You are lost. You are hopeless. You can't be good enough. You are so into your idol, you're dead. Spiritually. That is the most glorious news in all the Bible to that man. (laughs) Really? Why? He told him flat out, your heart is so wicked, you cannot do what's right. So his only answer would have been what? Help! I mean, he brought him right to the edge. He said, look, it's impossible for rich people to go to heaven. It's impossible. Brought him right up to it. Why would he do that? To show him just how much he needs him. And it appears the guy just walked away. And then he said it again. Jesus, It appears, if you look at the gospel accounts, if you look at it in the gospel accounts, it seems as though he says it to the guy, and then he walks away, and then the crowd's there, and he looks at his disciples and says it too. It's almost like he repeats the phrase. Why would he do it? Ah, 
Because he was looking to everybody to get everybody to see, you have no hope outside me. Period. Get this. You have no hope outside me. A camel through the eye of a needle. How do you get to heaven? A camel through the eye of a needle. How are you getting to heaven? How are you in this room getting to heaven? Impossible for you. Impossible. You are not going. I promise no one in this room is going on their own. You are not going to get through that eye of the needle. I promise. You can't make a camel do that. And you ain't getting there either. By the way, you guys, everybody in the room, I just looked at a couple stats again. You realize that in India and China, China's average pay per year is $8,000 a year. That's the average pay for their 1 billion, 400 million people. India, $300 a month. Average pay. Average take-home pay in India for 1.2 billion people, $300 a month, average pay. We make more than that. Everybody in the room. Everybody. Then both. We are the rich. (laughs) Young rulers. Our country is the rich young ruler. (laughs) And what does our culture tell evangelistically is our hope? Riches. What? No, what we need to hear is is sell everything you have and follow God. We need to hear that more in our culture, don't we? You know, I, I am completely convinced we would not have the problem we have. We would not have the problem we have with all these social issues. Listen to me, and you can take it. This is this is soapbox preaching now. If the churches would step up and do what they're supposed to be doing. The problem is not the governments. The problem is the churches. We are rich. And we are not helping. That's the problem. By the way. We cannot fall off the other side of the thing and say, well, let's go ahead and feed everybody because just giving them food is not going to answer the question either. Involvement. Throwing your life in people. Caring for people. And giving them the gospel. And helping them learn how to become Proverbs people is how you help people. But that takes too much time. Let's just give them money. Give our taxes to government and let the government give it to them. That's not the way. Jesus says, our hope is in Him and Him alone. He says, they said, then who can be saved? The implied question is, what are they saying? Rich can't be saved? That's crazy! How can the rich not be saved? They're the blessed of God. That's why they thought it. 
Jesus says what? The things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Ladies and gentlemen, our only hope of salvation is God. <laughs> God must change our hearts. God must provide a Savior. God must provide an atonement. God must provide a Savior. We only have Him. That's our only hope. And so, once we recognize that He is our only hope, we are willing to do what? Sell everything we have and follow Him. Because nothing we have is more valuable than Him. And everything that we have is now His anyway. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this glorious truth. We pray that you will help us to understand it and embrace it and know the value of your Son. Oh God, help us. It is impossible for us to even keep our salvation. So we need you. We need your grace. We know that your word says that you will. And so we trust you for that. We pray that you will help us now to serve you with eyes on you, knowing that you are worthy of our approval. You are God. And you are good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.